Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Fergus Gloucester, founder at Tommen Technology, on creating a SaaS sales engine that is built to last. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, I'm Paul, and today I'm with Fergus. Hi, Fergus. Hi, Paul. Nice to meet you. Likewise. So tell us, you have a very fascinating background, actually. So tell us a little bit more about you. Okay, so I've been involved in the IT industry over the past 30 years and more at this stage. And that has taken many different forms. Originally, I was a developer, was actually coding mainframe ERP systems in Silicon Valley. And over the years, then I had many technical roles in different companies, great companies such as Wang and Oracle. And I suppose what's of most interest to people these days is what I've been doing for the past 15 years. And if we go back 15 years to 2000, three of us left Oracle Ireland, great jobs, great company, to join this tiny, tiny little startup out of America called Salesforce.com. <laughs> and at the time, of course, there was no such thing as cloud computing, no such thing as SaaS. But there was this idea of utility-based computing, on-demand computing. There were application service providers, a whole raft of different ideas, basically around the delivery of enterprise-class systems uh, using the embryonic internet. And what was interesting about Salesforce.com was not just the technology and the delivery of a customer relationship management system or CRM system, to give its acronym, over the internet, but also a change in the business model. This has caused the fundamental shift in the software industry, particularly in the B2B space, and in a sense has paralleled some of the activities in the B2C world. But in the B2B world, we've shifted quite dramatically from an on-premise, a license in perpetuity with support paid annually through this radical concept of you're buying a service. And when you're buying a service, it's the totality of a service. And how the service is delivered to you, what the complexity is behind that network really is irrelevant. The end user just wants to engage with that service. So Salesforce.com started out with many others with this idea of delivering a service. So it was radical. We were the oddity in the industry and we were taking on some very, very big and powerful players. And over the years, obviously, the success is there for everyone to see. I was with Salesforce for nine brilliant years and helped develop what became its corporate sales model. I also ran marketing in Europe for a while in the early years. And through the development of that business model, we worked out not only how do you deliver a SaaS solution, but also basically, to sum it up, sell something at $50 per user per month and build a great company on the back of that and everything that goes with that concept of a service. So I left in 2009 because I wanted to and wanted to do different things. Spent a couple of years doing consulting advisory work and joined my first board, which was uh, New Voice Media and still on that board. And that's, again, another great example of a SaaS company changing the world that it lives in. 
in 2010, another US startup, Marketo, who was pioneering the whole area of marketing automation, again, in predominantly the Salesforce.com ecosystem, approached me about, you know, helping them to set up their business in Europe. And I did that for four years. And we had great success, again, building an entity from scratch. There was no Marketo presence internationally in terms of people or capability to deliver the service. And I built that over between 2011 and 2015 and had promised them four years. And that's what I did. I wanted, again, to do different things. I like the variety of startups. And since then, I've become involved in another company which does ERP over the cloud for retail, Brightpower. And in the intervening space as well, I also am an investor and a board member of a field service automation company called Fieldware, which again is a very interesting category. The time is right in terms of convergence of mobility and SaaS uh, to deliver usable and practical systems to that. So I'm involved with that as well. So today I'm predominantly involved in some non-exec work and advisory work to varying sizes of software companies as to how they might initiate SaaS from scratch or how they might transition their business from an on-premise perpetual-based model to a SaaS cloud environment. So that's kind of a quick potted history. Before I move on to the specifics of the SaaS industry, you are a tech guy that once decided to become a business person. Yes, correct. I mean, I was involved in a lot of different technologies, particularly in Oracle and its heyday, particularly around Oracle 7 and Oracle 8. And we could go into the joys of database design and database optimization, but that's probably for another day. But I've always had an interest in the business of the software industry and started to evolve my role from technology more into kind of a quasi product marketing role and then subsequently on to other roles. I wanted just to experience beyond being the techie in the corner. <laughs> the techie in the corner. Well, the techies are taking over the world. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a very simple question. If I were to start a SaaS business nowadays, how would you help me to do it? What would be the main things that with your years of experience, the key things necessary to start a SaaS business nowadays? You know, in terms of starting up a business, the fundamentals are the same, whether it's SaaS on premise, whether you're making chairs or making fridges, doesn't really matter. Obviously, there has to be that whole research into the viability of a market segment and the viability of a new offering in that segment. But if we take those fundamental business premises as having been executed or thought about, in other words, you're at least in the B2B space have identified a gap or identified a problem. Then obviously, we got to look at your ability to build an initial product that's attractive, that's sufficiently attractive. Whether you use the term minimum viable product or not doesn't really matter, but it's you know, the way I look at it, it's somebody would be willing to change their existing process or change their existing technology to at least try your solution out. So I think you've got to take that as table stakes. But beyond that, I think there has to be very much a different way of doing business. What the SaaS world has brought is a shift between the buyer and the seller. And because it's a service, you have to have every single piece of your organization, whether that's an organization of five people, 100 people, 20,000 people, understanding that it's a service you're delivering. 
SaaS or cloud changed this relationship where in the old model, the prospect went through a very complex RFI, maybe an RFP process. They had a few demos and then they took it all in good faith, went off and built an infrastructure of their own, put the software on. And then there was a lot of buyer's remorse, to put it mildly, in the (laughs) industry. The SaaS world completely changes that. It affords people the opportunity to engage with the prospective solutions out there. And in all cases, hopefully, try before you buy. And not just try the functionality, but try how the organization will treat you. What's their support like? What's their consulting services like, if appropriate? So it's about understanding that everyone in your organization is delivering a service. And if you look at salesforce.com, which is the poster child, and you look at the behavior and the taglines of that company, everybody from the top, from Mark Benioff down, and if you look at Phil Fernandez and Marketo, you'll see the very same. It's all about customer service because if you don't give the service, you don't get the renewal. If you don't get the renewal, the business model is flawed. That is fatal to any SaaS company, particularly a startup. The other thing that, that separates SaaS from other type of businesses is that you, you mentioned the example of $50 per month per user. There's less upfront money. Absolutely. So there's a massive cost in that, and that needs to be funded. Now, you can do it different ways. You can also use the SaaS model to extract via contracts and uh, negotiated terms cash from your customers. You can still do that, but normally you might do that over a horizon of a year. You must deliver a quality solution and solve and address the needs of that customer so that they feel they're getting value. So it's not just about selling, it's about adoption. And once you get to adoption, it's then about the engagement cycle so that there's a renewal. Very, very different business model than the, let's call it, traditional on-premise software that many people would have experienced prior to now. And having your organization understand that, it's very easy to say all these words. It's very, very hard to do. And it's very hard to live. And it's no different than, you know, this is why we called it utility-based computing in the early days. No different than turning on the switch into your room when you want the lights to come on. You want a simple engagement. You want it to be there on demand or every time you need it. But you understand there's massive complexity in how that was generated and delivered to you. So if you look at a B2B system, and particularly one that has stickiness, in other words, you can sell it and it's adopted and it stays because it's a value rather than a throwaway app, which, you know, I think is a different category. Then there is a huge amount of complexity, not only in the functionality of the solution, but in the technological delivery. And it doesn't really matter if somebody's having ISP problems and the service is slow, you have to take a degree of ownership and help them resolve that. Because at the end of the day, if their experience is bad for whatever reason, you'll be, as the vendor, the one that will suffer if you don't help address it. So you need to be very focused from the Mm get-go, start. Mm -hmm. And then how do you scale that? Because once you said value and adoption, but how do you scale adoption? So the way you scale it is by creating a viral effect and awareness through your marketing. You know, getting people excited about what you're doing in a given category and what you've been able to do and showing the difference through customer testimonies. They're absolutely critical. 
in all of the successful companies that I've experienced, both those that I've worked for directly and indirectly, it's the customers and their testimonials. And then it's how do you market that and how do you share that experience? And that great tagline of Mark Benioff's, it's all about customer success, is really how you start to address it and start to scale it. But then you look for efficiencies, and this is where the hub-based selling of salesforce.com comes into its own. Because you're selling sophisticated solutions, you know, we were the first to really, really sell start to finish enterprise class software predominantly over the phone and on the internet. Doesn't mean you don't meet people as appropriate, but you don't meet them all the time. So it's about taking cost out of the sales cycle. It's about, you know, optimizing, which you can do now greatly with superb solutions from the Marketos or the HubSpots of this world, marketing automation to help again optimize your marketing spend. You still need to do everything. It's not like you don't need to sell, you don't need to market, but you need to be very, very aware of your cost of customer acquisition, your pipe to spend metrics, and all of those optimization while still delivering a service. That's what makes it challenging for companies. You know, just because you acquire customers doesn't mean you'll keep them. And again, that's challenges for people, you know, who think it's just a build it and they will come. Like the e-commerce debacles of the 2000s was a very good example. And people in SMB, in SaaS, should avoid that mistake. With your experience at both Salesforce and Marketo, they were different companies because mm-hmm. Salesforce is known as to push a lot of sales people into territories. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it something that is still relevant today? What would you advise? Would you Very advise much to hire so. a lot of... You know, yeah. Ultimately, it's obviously a question of you're bound by the funding open to you. But relatively speaking, the market is infinite relative to your capabilities. So most of the scenarios in the B2B world, even if you look at the CRM world, And I'm sure if we were to ask Mark Benioff, he'd say, I've only 16, 17% of the CRM market. Now, he may have a much larger percentage of the CRM cloud market, but of the CRM market, I think the figures are somewhere in that kind of magnitude. So his view rightly is there's loads more to be won out there. So let's get the troops on the ground, etc. Likewise, in the marketing automation space, it's not obviously as mature as the CRM space. So there's huge potential out there. And again, I think it's a mixture of are you an SMB exclusive? Are you enterprise exclusive? Are you like both Marketo and Salesforce, you know, hybrids? So you're selling to both sectors. And if you're doing both, if you're doing enterprise in particular, you have to have feet on the street. You just have to. It's expected that engagement model, that C-level executive engagement, board level engagement, etc. There are different models. So that still holds true. Where the line is between SMB and enterprise, you can draw yourself for your own category. It's an internal line rather than the market itself or external people don't think of themselves necessarily that way. So yes, it's about funding appropriately and scaling. And the dynamics for scaling are functions of the productivity of your cost to customer acquisition. Whether you put a lot of that into salespeople or you decide taking, say, more of a marketing view of life, I put more into my marketing technology, doesn't really matter. It's the same CAC, just divided up maybe differently, but it is an investment. And if you are a startup with ambitions to build a global company, because remember, it's not just us in Europe that are thinking of building systems. There are people in Asia, there are people in America, etc. 
And the benefit for us is we can reach their customers. The bad news is they can reach ours. And that has to be a driver in terms of scale. And it's a very important factor. No point in having, you know, the best product locked in the Western parts of Europe that nobody gets to experience or very few. So in order to scale that best product to customers, you also need the best people. Mm-hmm. Whichever balance you end up choosing between automation, between a sales force, mm-hmm. not the company, but the people, you still need to focus a lot on people. So I guess onboarding must be important. In Onboard, how do- onboarding is critical. And even at the step before that, interviewing is critical. Both those companies I've mentioned before, we always try to hire people who got it. What we mean by that is they understood the dynamics of this concept of a service. They understood, you know, if they were more experienced and they'd come from other places or if there was their first or second job that they were willing to buy in and learn and this approach. So there's a mixture. I think you can either hire very experienced people, which you can today, fortunately, because there is a whole cloud industry and there are lots of great companies, not just the few we've concentrated on to date. There's that, but there's also, as we learned in Salesforce and Marketo, you can develop your own people. You have to start somewhere. It doesn't necessarily have to be the best people from the top SaaS companies today, because some of those may not be suitable for a startup. They might be far more suited to large company corporate infrastructure. So I think if you're in the startup environment, I think it's more important that you have somebody who understands or is willing to accept what startups are like rather than necessarily deeply understand cloud. I'd go for somebody who understands startups first. The other thing that we hear a lot, especially at conferences, and I think it's been overuses is ABC, you know, always be closing, mm-hmm. famous line from Glenglag and Gross. Don't you think that overselling is also something that can be dangerous? And maybe you've well, seen it in your experience. Of course, and you see overselling. The only problem is you get found out and you get found out at cost to the vendor and you get found out very quickly. You know, it will get weeded out of companies. The difference is, you know, the customer isn't signing up for perpetuity anymore. They're signing up for a year, maybe two years, whatever. They may be signing up for a trial. I mean, they can experience. If a salesperson says, well, this product is so good, sing Yankee Doodle Dandy to you, they can go on a free trial and experience that. Overselling will be more quickly caught and exposed. And the main side of the equation that it hurts is the vendor side. It ends up as attrition. It ends up as lost cost. It ends, etc. It's lots of things that... And particularly will ruin a startup. The other thing I want to listen to you on is uh, you're on the board on uh, New Voice Media, an ocean capital uh, company, and uh, you've been looking for funding for them. I mean, you help them mm-hmm. through their funding. Raising funds is also, in a way, selling. It so is. What kind of advice would you give people that are in the SaaS business and are fundraising? I think there's a mixture of things. There is selling the vision and the passion of your company or your solution. I think that has to really come across if you're, you know, founders, owners looking to raise money, articulating very clearly and concisely to your target funders, the value proposition, the market opportunity. Again, going back to those core basics we talked about earlier in terms of how do you get started? I think that's important. But I then think you need proof points. And the proof points are relative to the size of the company. So if it's very early stage, 
you want a few people using it. They may be friends of yours. They may be willing to help you mold and shape the product. But that's important. As you start to get into scale and scale is relative, then you need to show your ability to acquire at a consistent rate, maybe not a scaled rate, but a consistent rate, new customers. Repeatable rate. Exactly. New customers and that your ability to keep them. And therefore, you start to get into references, whoever those references are. I think then once you're beyond that, you're looking to raise money at scale or a growth round. And therefore, productivity metrics like cost of customer acquisition, pipe to spend, AE productivity, and that it's repeatable or as my American colleagues like to say, you can take the cookie cutter out. So if you had more money, here's what you do. And it's exactly what you've done over here, but you do it at scale in either new geographies or in a bigger geography, et cetera. I think that's, that's very, very important. And again, as you scale, I think you have to show that your willingness to bring in external talent. You can't solve everything by learning on the job each time. VCs will obviously like to see that you're bringing people into the company that may have addressed some of these problems over time. What you're telling me here is that the sales process itself within a company evolves with its scale. Of course it does. Of course it does. And, I, you know, the competitive landscape that impacts that. There's many, many, many facets. And, you know, that's why then you get this early stage appeal to some VCs and mid-stage and growth stages to others. And in terms, and that would be probably my last question, in terms of the challenge of the selling, if we go back to the essence of selling. So SaaS, obviously, mm-hmm. SaaS companies answer a lot of the challenges of selling, but don't you think that essence of selling is still tough? Oh, there are still challenges yeah, around. They're just, and that's what I meant by build it and they will come is a disaster. You, st- <laughs> you know, just because SaaS offers all of these wonderful and very valuable differences over the on-premise world, we're now getting to a stage where there really isn't that much new on-premise development going on, maybe in some very specialized areas. So all of your competitors of SaaS, they all can offer the same core value proposition. They may not execute as well in it, but you won't experience that until time passes. So of course, selling is still key. You know, it's a very valid question because it's something that a lot of Salesforce's competitors in particular misunderstood about the company. Just because it had a hub-based selling didn't mean it had real salespeople. It absolutely did. And it had top-class, enterprise-ready salespeople. The fact that they used the phone and the internet and collaborative tools like GoToMeeting or WebEx, and they were the first to do it at scale and in anger, didn't mean there weren't good salespeople. And that's where they're I would argue some of the competitors misunderstood and underestimated what Salesforce did. So for any startup, a build it and they will come. Just look at the e-commerce disasters of 2000 and look again at those who think, I'll build a SaaS company and just throw out a freemium model all on its own. It will definitely get you to a point. It might get you to several million a turnover, but it won't build a great company. So at the end, we always come back to people, right? Of course. So if people want to reach you, how can they reach you? I think LinkedIn is probably the easiest place to get me on and connect through there. Always interested to talk to people. Thank you so much, Fergus, for your time today. Thank you, Paul.